Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Martin Chemnitz in Caridian. Let's begin with an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, we left off in the topic of original sin. Give you a pop quiz here. Put you on the hot seat. If there are two errors, you can know them by their name or you can just explain them. There are two errors that we have seen Chemnitz fighting against and there are two opposite errors. Could you articulate one or the other or both? I'm so- Okay, there's one. So the part that is not that there is a part that is not corrupted. So this would this would be under the label Pelagianism, and it's this idea that there's some part of the human nature after the fall into sin that remains uncorrupted, often located in the will or reason. Thus, an unbeliever can make a decision for Jesus or can rationally conclude that Jesus uh, is, is the Messiah, etc. So there's some part of fallen man that remains untainted by original sin. There's one error and one ditch we are avoiding. Do you know what the other is? Yes, exactly right again. Nice job. So the other side, the opposite error, is that the human nature is so thoroughly corrupted by original sin that the nature itself has become sin. The problems with this are manifold, and the Book of Concord argues a number of different points. I'll simply point out three. The first is that if to be human is to be sinful then God is the author and creator of sin. That's a problem. Of course, the scriptures speak against that. The second argument would be that if to be human is to be sinful, then how on earth could the incarnation have happened? Couldn't. And the third argument that I'll present to you is that in the new heavens and the new earth, we are once again human beings, and human beings in the fullest sense, and yet without sin. So those are the two errors, and this latter error that we've been talking about goes under the title Manichaeanism. actually has less to do with what Manny actually taught, but is tangential to that, and his teachings, um, although they're Gnostic in nature, it's that duality. It's the idea that God creates a physical, material human being that is nothing but sin. That's the connection with Manny. So you have the Manichaean error and the Pelagian error, and the truth of God's word steers us right down the middle course. So that's what we're seeing, and that's what we're exploring here as we get back into Chemnitz's text on page 60. You'll see that question 110, in the main, directs against the Manichaean error. What good is it? Or why is it necessary to distinguish between the nature or substance, essence of man, that is between the body and soul of man depraved by sin and sin itself, by which the nature of man has been depraved? You know, and before I forget, this might seem like... uh, like this is, a, uh, this, this is a battle of the past only, and this doesn't have any bearing on current controversies that we're going through. 
but I think it really does, even if they only appear tangential at first, I think there's a deeper connection. Maybe I won't be able to take us all the way there in this brief comment. But I do want to show that in the Darwinian, in the uh, frame, and the Darwinian creation myth, man is an animal. Nothing more, nothing less. That would roughly be translated to man is, a Manichaean view of man is sinful in his essence. He's animalistic in his essence. He can do no other. So there would be a connection. Now, maybe a less obvious connection would also be in this idea of Manichaeism that God creates disordered human beings. That would be a Manichaean. And so what, what is going on today with transgenderism? God made a mistake. I'm a man in a woman's body or a woman in a man's body or a chicken nugget in the body of a whatever. So, you know, whatever nonsense you want to dream up, the idea is that God made a mistake in his very creation of me and my very essence is a disordered essence, a mistake. So those are two contemporary tangents to this discussion where it's really good to have your mind clear on the biblical teaching on these two errors to avoid because you're going to see these two errors alive and well in differing ways. On the other side of the coin today, you would see the idea of Pelagianism in the quote-unquote secular sphere along the lines of the Enlightenment, that man is the source and judge of all things, of all truth. He's the, the peak and the epitome, and so he can determine for himself, he's self-determining, um, and his reason is untouched, untainted by any sin. So uh, this is the root of scientism. It's the root of uh, follow the science. Of course, the people who loudly proclaim that only follow it when they want to. And that's increasingly rare. But the idea of follow the science, that science is the golden light, that science is the untainted, unenlightened reason that will take us to truth. Objective truth, um, this kind of idea. And then you see this idea that if man simply deals with pure reason and programs software like ChatGPT to use pure reason, then we will have objective truth. We will have untainted objective truth, which of course is impossible. Whatever man through his tainted reason creates is going to bear the mark of his image and is going to be likewise biased and tainted. Okay, so there's, frankly, there's all kinds of contemporary applications in our secular lives and the secular religions, <laughs> so to speak, all around us in America. And really, it's just paganism re-envisioned for the modern man. That would be a clearer way of putting it. To say nothing of the battles that continue to, raise, uh, continue to rage in the church when we really look at these issues, specifically the role of the will in our lives as Christians. You've got conflict in almost every denomination over this, or you've got false teaching in almost every denomination over this. So I just wanted to bring some of that to bear lest we think we're just blowing off a dusty text uh, that has no bearing on our life or our thinking today. All right, so back to Chemnitz then. It's important to distinguish uh, between the body and soul of man depraved by sin and sin itself, but why or what good is it? Chemnitz answers... Though original sin has so infected, corrupted, and depraved the whole nature of man as spiritual poison and leprosy, as Luther says, that nature as such cannot separately be shown to the senses and to the eye, and original sin as such, likewise separately, for original sin is not something that exists of itself separately outside the nature of man or exists by itself, Yet the nature or essence, that is, the body and soul of man, which is the creature and work of God, 
an original sin, which is the work of the devil, by which human nature has been corrupted and depraved, are altogether to be distinctly considered by the intellect and thought. The chief article of our faith drive and compel us to establish, consider, and observe that distinction. All right, well, many of the thoughts we've... Yeah, it is a long sentence there with a few parenthetical comments to make it more complicated, especially probably to the ear. But I think, other than re-highlighting the things we've mentioned, maybe one point just to reflect on is that original sin in and of itself has no substance. We're We're talking about humanity as a creature of God being having a substance and being good when God makes man. Man is declared by God to be good. And then you have a corruption of that, a corrosion of that. And that's what we call original sin. But original sin can't exist by itself because it's a corruption of something. It's not a thing in and of itself. Does that make sense? Augustine will even talk this way about Evil. Sometimes it confuses people into saying untrue things. But I think Augustine still has a point that the devil's profoundly uncreative and evil is profoundly uncreative. All evil can do is take what is and twist it, distort it, and disorder it. All evil can do is take God's yes and say no or take God's no and say yes. It's always reactionary. It never has any substance of itself, any newness, any uh, creative element or novel element to it. It's always just a twisting of what already is. Okay, so I think that's a helpful thing to keep in mind. Now, Chemnitz is going to present uh, four more arguments that undergird and support his point. So we'll take up the first one toward the bottom of page 60. For one, Scripture testifies regarding the doctrine of creation that God created human nature not only before the fall, but also after the fall. That's the key point here, that God continues to create. So obviously we have kind of a deistic or clockmaker God rejected here. It's not as if God created things good, the devil came and tainted things, and the way God created is he winded it all up like a clock, and now it's, he's far up in heaven, and it's just going on its own. That's not the case at all. God is creating actively and continuously, sustaining creation. We'll see scriptural proofs for that, or at least a list of them. We saw some earlier today, like uh, in, our, in our reading from the Book of Concord, David says, now David is obviously born after Adam and Eve. (laughs) I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. And likewise, Job, again, after Adam and Eve, says, your hands fashioned and made me. Okay, so there's two from the book of Concord. So the scriptures say that God is continuously engaged in creation. So once more, Scripture testifies regarding the doctrine of creation that God created human nature not only before the fall, but also after the fall, and that he is the one who gives shape and form to this our nature and substance, or this our body and soul, so that man, according to his essence, which consists of body and soul, is also now the creature and work of God, Though this creature of God has been miserably corrupted and depraved by sin, as testimonies of Scripture clearly show, and I won't recite all the ones he has listed there for you. So also Luther explains and sets forth the doctrine of creation in the small catechism. Since original sin is not of God, for God is neither the author nor the doer of sin, is also not the creature or work of God, but the work of the devil. Therefore, in order not to blaspheme by either making God the author of sin, or the devil the creator and maker of our nature or essence, that is, of our body and soul, but in order that the creation and the work of God in man be reverently distinguished from that which is the work of the devil, 
We must distinguish between the nature or essence of our body and soul, which is the creature and work of God, also now after the fall, and sin, which is the depravity of our nature and a work of the devil himself. Okay, so I think the main take-home point that God continues to create, and so the devil also continues to pervert. So far, so good? All right, top of page 61. Of the doctrine of redemption, Scripture firmly creates, uh, excuse me, declares that the Son of God assumed our human nature in conception by the Holy Spirit. Cleansed and sanctified from the fall into sin, so that in all things except sin, he could be made like to and consubstantial with, as the ancients put it, our brethren. Hebrews 2 16 17. If then there were no difference at all between our human nature, which has been depraved by the fall, an original sin by which our nature has been corrupted and perverted, it would follow that Christ did not assume our human nature or essence consisting of the body and soul because he did not take on sin, or that he also took on sin because he assumed our nature, but both conflict with Scripture. Therefore, we must distinguish between human nature and sin. All right, so this is alive and well. Unfortunately, ELCA theologian uh, has written that when God, when, Christ, when God became man in Christ, he became a sinner. And this uh, same theologian is championed by the LCMS, unfortunately, and published in our publishing house and all kinds of other nonsense. So is this fitting even within the LCMS to remember our Lutheran doctrine and make a stand against it and confess against it even when... Other people can't see the errors? Absolutely. So this, uh, again, has very, very acute bearing for us that we have this straight. To be human is not necessarily to be a sinner. As Adam and Eve, as Christ, and as the resurrected saints do and will show. Okay, so if we're tracking the arguments, there are... Two of the three that I already mentioned, the first argument on page 60 has to do with creation. The second argument on the top of 61 has to do with the incarnation. All right, and then let's look at the third argument. In the doctrine of sanctification, Scripture teaches that God washes, cleanses, and sanctifies man from sin. First, by free remission of sins, by not imputing sin to him, but covering it. Then, by the beginning of renewal and sanctification of the Holy Ghost. Now, this is a a point of the utmost importance. So much so, I'm just going to read it again and do a little explanation for you. But if there's something, if you're a highlighter, here is something to highlight and star and return to. I cannot tell you how many times I see Lutherans who otherwise seem to be good theologians botch this point in the LCMS and otherwise. Or just outright deny it. In the doctrine of sanctification, so we're talking about sanctification, Scripture teaches that God washes, cleanses, and sanctifies man from sin. First, by free remission of sins, by not imputing sin to him, but covering it. Okay, stop there. This is sanctification, and the Bible has texts that use the language of sanctification in just this way. But don't be confused by the language. What has just been described? Justification. Okay? So sanctification means to make holy. The first way in which God makes us holy is in the way that Chemnitz just describes. We could summarize this by pure imputation. He imputes or credits the righteousness of Christ to us. That's the first way in which we're made holy. And really, frankly, it's the foundational way in which we're made holy. 
It's the only way in which we get into heaven. You don't ever get mature enough or grow enough as a Christian where God goes, okay, that's it. I, on, the, on the basis of your own renewal, I now welcome you into heaven. It never happens. So this is the most important aspect of sanctification, to be sure. Namely, that we are justified apart from our own works, that God sanctifies man from sin, and that he does this by forgiving sins, by not imputing our sins to us, but rather imputing Christ's righteousness to us, by covering over our sins so he doesn't see them. Okay? That's the first part of sanctification. Now, people will use that dishonestly, and they'll act like they discovered this in the Bible, and, oh, look, lo and behold, in the Bible, when it says sanctification, it knows nothing of any progress or growth in the Christian life. So they'll deceive you, and they'll say, ha-ha, in the Bible, in this verse or that, sanctification is used as justification, so there is, in fact, no sanctification, no growth in the Christian life. It's all just justification. Hogwash. I hope you can see that. I hope you can see that that's not true from the scriptures and it's not even Lutheran, even though Lutherans are the ones saying this. Okay? That's the first part of sanctification. What's the second part of sanctification? Here's the change in ontology, the change in our very nature. So I'm just going to pick up after the semicolon. Then, by the beginning of renewal. And that's all it is. It's the beginning of renewal. And it grows, God willing, in this life. But it's not the completion of renewal. But it is indeed the beginning of renewal. And sanctification of the Holy Ghost. And here we mean sanctification in the sense of the development of the virtues that are in accord with Christ. The veer, the man. And being conformed into his image. So here's what we mean when we think of sanctification as distinct from justification. Sanctification, not as the, anything as the basis of our salvation, but sanctification is that gift that the Holy Spirit works within us, wherein he gives us new birth, makes us a new creature, a new man, with new impulses, with new desires. And this is the new man that agrees with the law of God that it is good, and is grieved that the law of sin remains within. This is the new nature that delights in the law of God, but hates and despises the body of death that still exists as part of the whole person. So you can see this alive and well in St. Paul, in Romans 7, and many other places, countless other places. It's the thoroughgoing teaching of the scriptures. All right, so I'm going to... uh, Presume upon your patience and read this once more and then pause to see if you have any questions or need any clarification. In the doctrine of sanctification, Scripture teaches that God washes, cleanses, and sanctifies man from sin first by free remission of sins. So there's the first part, properly speaking. By not imputing sin to him, but covering it. Here's the second part. Then by the beginning of renewal and sanctification of the Holy Ghost. How then can sin either be called or be man himself? For God receives the person of man or man himself into grace for the sake of Christ and adopts him as a son and heir of life eternal. But sin itself, inasmuch as it is sin... He never received into grace or counted it among his children. Know rather that sin by which man is weighed down and which is sometimes covered in this life will cease in the elect after this life, but body and soul will continue in eternal life. So so original sin is something that can be circumcised off of us. And if it can be circumcised off of us, then it isn't our essence or nature, you see. So it's like if I've got a rash on my arm, is the rash my arm? No, because the rash can be removed and my arm remains. Okay, so if sinful nature 
adheres to every part of my fallen being. The Lord can make a new creation. And Augustine says this is even a more magnificent creation than the creation at the beginning of the world that's ex nihilo, out of nothing. Because God brought forth out of nothing that which is good, Augustine argues. Here he does something exponentially more important and more difficult and more wonderful. He takes not nothing and makes something, but he takes wickedness and that which is opposed to him and makes within the very heart or calls uh, from out of that (laughs) righteousness, a new man who loves him and desires him. It's not merely, so the new creation by the word of the gospel, by the waters of holy baptism. This new creation is more impressive than the first creation. Again, this is, I'm crediting Augustine here, and I agree with him wholeheartedly, because it's one thing to make something out of nothing. It's another thing to make something out of its opposite, namely to make righteous men out of sinful men, and a new world out of a wicked and perverted world. And that's what God is doing. Okay, so there's the third argument. Let me pause, as I promised, and see if you have any questions, any confusions, or anything you want to mention. Okay, so would you say it would be like uh, leprosy? You're born, you have leprosy in your DNA, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't get activated until you start growing. You come out of the womb and you start Mm -hmm. growing, and then your eyes pick up all kinds of lustful things and stuff like that, so then it starts getting bigger and bigger. And, and so in order to get rid of it, you, you need the blood of Jesus would be an antidote to get rid of that leprosy. That's the way it would be proper way of looking at it? Sin? Yeah. yeah, I think so, yeah. So the blood of Jesus then, in your analogy, which I think is a good analogy, according to Augustine, if we, or Augustine Chemnitz, if we kind of shem, um, shove it into this frame, then that blood of Jesus is doing two things. In the first place... It's covering your leprosy so that when God sees you, he sees someone who is pure and clean. That's forensic or uh, accredited or imputed righteousness, right? But the second thing that blood does is starts to diminish the leprosy. Now, it doesn't finish the work until death. But it does begin that work of fighting against and quelling the old Adam. And we're so scared to say this. We're so scared to say that I'm less of a sinner now than I was 10 years ago. But that's the fact. That's a fact. Now, am I less condemned? No. Do I have less original sin? No. One, I mean, just original sin itself is damning. One sin is damning. So you've got to remove this out of the frame of justification and into the frame of sanctification proper. And then you want to say, yes, I understand and love and know more about God today than I did 10 years ago. Don't you? If not, why not? And people think it's humility to deny that. Well, you're denying the work of the Holy Spirit, and probably you're lying. (laughs) Thinking it's piety that you just, oh, I'm the same poor, miserable sinner I've always been. Really? So the Holy Spirit isn't at work in you then? How come not? Now, in a sense, so we can, we, can go before, we can go before the throne of God and say, yes, I a poor, miserable sinner. Yes, I a poor, miserable sinner. I, I am never standing before the throne of God saying, well, I'm a little better now than I used to be, so therefore, you know, let me into your kingdom, or therefore I'm justified, or something. I mean, all of that's foolish. It's the furthest thing away from biblical thought. It's the furthest thing away from Lutheran thought. But what is also the furthest thing away from biblical and Lutheran thought is this idea that, well, I'm, I have the righteousness of Christ imputed to me, and I'm just stuck in the dead end of my own unrighteous sin, and there's nothing that can be done, and anybody who tells me otherwise is a heretic, and so my job is to just wallow in my own misery, neither believing that the Holy Spirit is working and telling others they can't believe that either, or else they're pietists and legalists. Now, that might even work for a generation, but guess what that does to your son when, and your sons when you teach them that? 
their 16-year-olds and they look to their fathers and the fathers in the church and they think the peak of orthodoxy, the peak of Christian maturity within the Lutheran frame or other is to confess that you can't do anything to improve yourself. How do you think that plays out? Well, I'm already there. And I'm miserable, and I can't do anything about it, and that's what Christianity teaches me. Do you, do you think that that's going to be a spiritually healthy way to move forward for the next 60 or 70 years of your life? No. You may as well have just stamped out the smoldering wick of their faith. So that, that is something to pay attention to as well, that might, what might quote-unquote work for you, even if it's wrong, what quote-unquote might work for you when you're 60 or 50 isn't going to work for those who are in their teens or their 20s. It's going to utterly destroy their faith. So these things have real-life, real-world consequences. And when people say, well, where are all the young men in our churches? There's lots of reasons why the young men aren't in our churches. But one of those reasons is we've told them, as miserable as you are now, you will remain. It will never get better in this life. You will never have control of your hormones or your impulses or anything else. And in fact, it's the peak of Christian maturity to believe that and not to believe other. Anybody else smell sulfur? <laughs> so this stuff has, uh, has great importance. Please. Yeah, this might be just a simple way to think of the sin nature, but it's my understanding, and on this side of heaven, in our justification process, and a verb I haven't used, I haven't seen used in this book, is just the simple word being completely cleansed. Is that right to think that when we are justified, we are completely cleansed of our sin in the sense of justification? And because we are cleansed from our sins, that's why we are able to be sanctified. Yeah, right. I think you're right. So in the same way that sanctification, in the same way that all these theological words... Gospel, repentance, sanctification, in the same way that all these words have, have different senses, wide and narrow senses, and you discover this in the scriptures, the same thing is true for cleansing. So cleansing can be used for the cultic or ceremonial rite wherein the blood of the lamb is poured out and you are cleansed from your sins, that is, God imputes them to you no longer. He credits them to you no longer. He looks at you and sees a sinner. That's one way in which cleansing is used. And that's the justification sense of the word that I heard you saying. It's exactly right. The other way that cleansing is used is as a process where the leprosy is being cleansed from you. Now, it's only begun in this life it's completed in death. But that cleansing can be described as a process and as a continual process. So this is, again, uh, you can think of as they went, they were healed. Even that shows, even if it's in a small way, a process. Or the man who is blind, Jesus heals and he sees everything looking like trees, men looking like trees, and then Jesus does more and he sees clearly. So there are illustrations of this in the scriptures that progress, that cleansing, the restoration of sight, the cleansing of the flesh from leprosy is a process and um, it's a process to be engaged in in this life where one can see some improvement in this life, to be sure. And then ultimately, though, God has to complete that in death. And this is where we can see the transformation of death once again. It's not just that 
God has neutered death, that's true, <laughs> or that, that God has rendered death impotent, or that God has like hollowed out death. I mean, all of those things are true, but God's done so much more. He's turned it into a good thing in the sense that the tomb is a womb most profoundly, but here too that death is a circumcision, that death, which would be thought of naturally as the most unclean thing, is now the very thing that cleanses or cleanses us from all mark and remnant of original sin. Properly speaking, there are no sinners, and this is Chemnitz's point, properly speaking, there are no sinners in heaven. Because death is that which causes you to no longer be a sinner. Death is the portal through which you pass, the narrow gate through which you pass in Christ. And what is removed from you is the sinful nature. So when you enter heaven, you don't enter heaven as a sinner. And this, by the way, is the mistake of purgatory. This idea that you've got to go into the anteroom of heaven and spend bazillions of years, I don't know, being exercised by angels in some cases, um, or whatever else, the wrath of God in other cases. No, this cleansing can take place instantaneously and does take place instantaneously through death. And it's not to say that there isn't more growth after that. I'm not opposed to that idea whatsoever. We, and, and I won't bother to prove that with text, but Revelation's very helpful here. Um, the point being that you're done with sin as you pass through death. So death has been transformed into its very opposite, as that which finally cleanses and makes clean, whereas death would otherwise be seen as the epitome of being unclean and corrupted. I see it. Yes, please. Did the idea that you're never going to get any better, did that originate in our seminaries? And is it, it did stop. If it did, it, it stopped. It's not taught now, is it? Um, unfortunately, I think you still do hear this doctrine, this way of, it's more like a way of speaking and a way of thinking. And I, I detect it all over the place in the LCMS. And I detect it all over the place because I detected it in myself, <laughs> first and foremost. And I was like, oh, that's a problem. Uh, and so I think to one degree or another, it has been taught in the Lutheran church as to the root and source of this, it's hard to say, and it's really a matter of scholarly debate. It seems to have been around at least since the 19th century in uh, broader Lutheranism, not even Lutheranism in the States per se, but broader Lutheranism, so European Lutheranism. Uh, But it came really into vogue and into mainstream uh, American Lutheranism Probably in the late 20th century would be pretty easy to say. And that was, so a lot of this is at the heart of ELCA theology. And then unfortunately, there's been friendliness toward ELCA theology in our seminaries. And those texts have been brought in uncritically. And we've read them uncritically and imbibed them uncritically. And thus, you get a lot of this uh, stuff. So... In a lot of pulpits, people who believe themselves to be the most orthodox Lutheran, the most confessional Lutheran, will be the very ones to uh, confront a pastor if a pastor is to say just simply what St. Paul says. We heard from Ephesians that you would grow up into the full maturity of the man, that you would grow up into Christ. If a, if a Lutheran preacher preached like that and ended his sermon like that, very frequently it will be those who self-identify as the most orthodox and confessional Lutherans in the congregation who will say, Pastor, what is this? Pietism? What is this? Legalism? And that, that comes from a layered misunderstanding. But, I mean, superficially, I hope you can see it. At what point in time did preaching, like Paul preaches, preaching like Paul writes, become an error? I thought we were sola scriptura around here. (laughs) So something major has happened in the 20th century 
And I think, I think positively speaking, the last couple of decades have been very positive toward regaining Orthodox Lutheranism and regaining our preaching and regaining our piety. And a lot of what's going, what, what is catalyzing that is that the world is no longer this comfortable place in which we can live. We're not able to assimilate easily into American culture anymore. We're being persecuted. And when you're being persecuted, there's a whole set of scriptures that all of a sudden start making sense that didn't make sense before, including those scriptures that draw a hard line between the sons of light and the sons of darkness. This is what it means to live and be a son of light. This is what it means to live and be a son of darkness. So then you can see how there's two different entire lifestyles. And you can see what the church saw in previous ages. In the early church, for example, a vicar and I have been reading Athanasius on the Incarnation. The fascinating thing is the way he sees what we're calling sanctification, the narrow sense, or growth in one's uh, sanctification, growth in one's, the virtues that are Christ's virtues. Our testimony of the veracity of the objective truth and power of Christ, that Christ is doing in human beings what no other discipline or philosophy can do. Because every other discipline or philosophy is ultimately self-serving and ultimately devoid of the Holy Spirit and ultimately impotent. But here comes Christ with his Holy Spirit and in lives of incorrigible sinners, you're suddenly finding elements of, I guess, corrigibility, (laughs) elements where there's a softening of the heart and a change of the way and manner of life that nothing else could affect. So what someone like Athanasius is dealing with is a pagan world that hates him and that hates Christianity. And he's saying, look at the power of Christ in conquering this in the saints, conquering these passions and powers of darkness in the saints. That's a totally different frame than, oh, so Athanasius is all about works righteousness. Oh, so Athanasius is a pietist. Uh, No. (laughs) No. Athanasius understood Christ's teaching that the church is a city on a hill whose light cannot be hidden and that we are, as Christians, light and salt and those things are distinctive from that which is not salty and distinctive from that which is darkness and it will be in particular our works and our di- that is to say our difference in life, our difference in how we live that will, dr- that will draw the attention of pagans. I think we already see that manifest today. How fruitful is it to go out into the world and just start shouting, uh, God forgives you because of Jesus? That's not fruitful. It's not going to make disciples. It never has made disciples. But what does make disciples is living contrary to the world, and then they say, what's going on? Or they say, you have hope, and I don't have hope. Or they say, you've got control of this aspect of your life, but I don't have control of this aspect of my life. What's your secret? Those are the kinds of things that, have, that are the entry point to then being able to speak the gospel and say, well, it's because of Christ. He doesn't impute or credit our sins to us. We're justified by grace through faith apart from our works. But he so fills us with his Holy Spirit that I'm not the person I want to be, that's for sure. I'm still a sinner and I'm still struggling. That's 100% for sure. But he's still at work within me and at work within his people. And yeah, if you see a change and notice a difference, well, God be praised. But that's his project to call us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you can see how this works then in terms of the overarching teaching of the scriptures and also the experience of the larger church. Okay, so um, anything else we want to touch on? Or we want to hit the last argument here? Okay, so let's hit the last argument, which is page 61, and this is fourth. And you'll recognize this because this is the third argument that I presented to you in brief at the beginning of the hour. 
of the resurrection of the flesh and life eternal, the Holy Scriptures testify that the same substance of our flesh, Job 19.26, but glorified will also be raised without sin. So this is, in my flesh shall I see God and none other. So even after my flesh has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, so there's a continuity. It is truly these bodies that we'll receive. I won't receive the, I mean, here you can see the Gnosticism. I won't receive the body of an African-American man. I won't receive the body of a Chinese man. I'll receive the body that, and they will receive their bodies, and these bodies are all good. They've all been created and made by God. They've all been covered in the blood of Christ and uh, made new by the Holy Spirit, and they will be raised as they are, and and thus all the nations, as Revelation shows, all the ethnicities, all the peoples, enter heaven as they are. This insane idea that we deny these distinctions, I don't know where this came from other than maybe communists. Uh, I don't know where this has come from whatsoever, because, it is. I mean, this idea that there's no such thing as national differences... I mean, just first is patently absurd. Are we trying to, are we trying to preclude any intelligent per- person from entering the church? <laughs> that seems like it. It's patently absurd. But the other thing is why it's, why it's wicked is because God's the one who made the races and he didn't do so as a curse. The races aren't something to be overcome. Pentecost isn't, doesn't overcome the races. Pentecost, in Pentecost, the Holy Spirit doesn't blast everyone's mind so everyone's speaking the same language. The Holy Spirit speaks to each language of the various tribes and nations represented there at Pentecost. So we're all raised then in these bodies, whatever they are, and there's continuity there, but the discontinuity is that it's these bodies glorified and made perfect and made wonderful. And that is uh, only glimpsed in the resurrection of Jesus and the uh, testimonies from the scriptures we have from Easter to his ascension. We glimpse his body and we start to understand how our bodies will be. But they are immortal bodies and they are incorruptible bodies. They are deathless bodies. And that means they're going to be bodies free from any kind of disease or corruption or aspect or element of the fall. So I love, I love this idea too that, um, you know, what we, what we look at when we look at each other and we say, oh, I'm getting old. Uh, not technically true. <laughs> You're getting decayed. There's nothing inherently connected with age and decay. So, in other words, I mean, you could think of it this way. God is called Ancient of Days. You think that means that he looks like Yoda? (laughs) He's all wrinkled and bald and... No. So, as you age, you don't necessarily become more decayed that you only, as you age, become more decayed on account of the curse. So there's, uh, well, I'll just mention one. Tolkien's got this idea with the elves, and he expresses it so beautifully that the elves, you can tell by looking at them, even though they're uncorrupted and even though they don't decay in their age, you can tell that one is older than another because there's a deepening and a deeper expression of wisdom and maturity on their faces, but as such without decay. So this is a glorious picture of um, our lives in the new heavens and the new earth, that it will be these bodies, and it will be these bodies without decay, and it will be these bodies that we have unto the ages of ages, even through the passing of time. And in all likelihood, we will continue to grow and develop and mature in, even in our physical appearance as we go along just not via decay. So we'll have to see. An element of that is speculative, the idea of growth, but the rest of it is not speculative. It's this very flesh that will be raised, just raised, perfect, raised as God intends us to be. So again, you can see how this flies in the face with the idea of like, 
the whole trans movement or the whole idea that God has, you know, I'm just sort of this meat puppet and God has inserted a soul into this meat puppet and I, if the soul determines that the meat puppet doesn't fit, then the soul can do whatever it wants to the meat puppet because the meat puppet isn't really you. I mean, this is kind of the ugly paganism, the ugly Gnosticism that's been around forever and it's just rearing its head in ugly forms and ancient forms. I mean, a lot of this transgenderism stuff is ancient uh, and was uh, thoroughgoing in previous centuries and previous times. <clears throat> and of course, as it is today, deeply tied in with religiously held beliefs, religious beliefs. So we can see then how important it is that we recognize the project of God, that he's created us in a way that he won't destroy us. Nobody gets a lobotomy when you die and go into heaven. Okay? You're intact There's organic connection between this life and that which is to come. There's bodily connection between this life and that which is to come. And this is all, by the way, if if this is kind of your thing and you want to have Christ at the center of all of it, which I commend, that's great, um, then this is especially important and, and an especially important component of Jesus' resurrection. Because when Jesus is put to death... He is not given a new body. When Jesus is raised from the dead, it's not in a new body, but in the body bearing the marks of the nails and the spear. It's his same body. Nor is Jesus lobotomized. Who are you? You were my disciples? Uh, No, it's the same body. And it's the same continuity of being. And then he will remain in that glorious body for all eternity. I mean, this is the mind-blowing part of the incarnation. That, Strictly speaking, from our view, there's a mystery almost too glorious for words, and that is that God was not man and God became man, and there will never be a time again when God is not man. Remarkable, astounding fact that God now is forever man in Christ Jesus. There's not going to be a time in which Jesus says, okay, I'm done being man back to just being God. So has he glorified our flesh and brought in into this reality us in our flesh so that there's continuity and there's glory. So yeah, we look to Jesus as our model and template for resurrection, for continuity. And he was raised in his body and his body gives some signs even in the, uh, even in the Gospels of being uniquely glorified. That's what some, some of what's behind Um, They can't recognize him, and then they do recognize him. It's also some of what's behind him showing up in the midst of the room and the locked doors and this kind of thing. Um, there, There are all kinds of tantalizing hints that Jesus, in his human nature, in his body, is now different. There's continuity, but there's also this discontinuity between when he was with them in the days of his flesh or when he was with them as he had been. Now there's, he's with them in a new way. Okay, so all of that in view here in this fourth argument and final argument answering the question of why it is necessary to distinguish between humanity as such and the corruption of original sin, thoroughgoing as it is. Question, comment? I don't want to take us too far off track, but is it wrong to think that Christ has the ability to dial up or dial down his divinity within his human body? Because, you know, we've talked before about Adam and Eve probably were more filled with light. They didn't see their bodies as much because of... Before they were sinful, then they recognized that they were naked. Mm -hmm. So possibly Christ is able to appear more human with his marks and then more like light when he's, I mean, I'm thinking maybe he can Mm. go closer to the transfiguration appearance and more human-like as necessary so he doesn't create terror in the human Mm, beings that can't comprehend the full 
essence of his divinity. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting way to put it. Um, I think I think I think the answer to your question is yes. Now he's so I mean to be clear, he's fully God and fully human all the time. But there is a difference in his post-resurrection appearances, and I think that's what you're getting at. So there's a difference between Jesus showing up in the upper room and showing them his hands and his side, and what John sees when he looks at the resurrected Jesus and sees the eyes of fire and the feet of bronze and the face shining as the sun. There's no indication that what John saw there is what John was seeing in the upper room. So then... If I'm framing your question correctly, can the post-resurrection Jesus appear to us in different manners and in different ways? I think absolutely. Yeah. It's still him, but he's got these different, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, and of course, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, so obvious as to be missed is he's present with us absolutely and objectively and truly say in the Lord's Supper. But we don't perceive any of his glory. It's nonetheless him. The glory and is, is invisible. The person is invisible, but he is nonetheless objectively there. So this is, uh, yeah, this is part and parcel of the conversation of the different modes of being. <laughs> <laughs> that the confessions talk about. So let me, um, let me just read for you one thing out of the formula of Concord so that you can see, because I, I can, you know, an argument can be made by somebody who doesn't like what I've had to say here. Well, that's just Rhodey and Chemnitz. And we don't subscribe to Rhodey and we don't subscribe to Chemnitz. So we don't have to believe any of that. Okay. Well, let me show you where Chemnitz... <laughs> <laughs> writes the same thing in the Book of Concord. So if you are going to be a confessional Lutheran, you do have to believe and assert everything you've heard Chemnitz assert, and insofar as I've been faithful to him, what you've heard me assert. So in the uh, formula, and again, I can't commend this enough to you, in the formula of Concord, the solid declaration, that's the longer portion, in Article 2 on free will, The whole first part is how we can do nothing in our justification, how the will plays no part in our justification, but rather the will is the very thing that God must convert. We go from willing contrary to him to willingly believing in him. The will is converted by God. But once that will has been converted by God, there's a change that happens. So listen to, and this is just one section that I've kind of picked out, there's a thoroughgoing argument with many important and good things to be said. But listen to this. There is a great difference between baptized and unbaptized people. Now, obviously, faith is inferred here. We're not talking about somebody who's baptized but no longer believes. That's not the point. There's a great difference between baptized and unbaptized people. According to the teaching of St. Paul, In Galatians 3.27, now quoting him, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ and are made truly regenerate. So what the Book of Concord is arguing is Paul says, look, the difference between a baptized person and an unbaptized person is one is completely clothed in Christ and the other isn't, is naked in their trespasses and sins. Similarly, because we're clothed in Christ, We are regenerate, whereas an unbaptized or unbelieving person is unregenerate. All right, so the argument goes on. They now have a freed will. Now, this is a question you could probably stump a fair amount of LCMS or Wells or whoever you want to pick out of the conservative church bodies and say, hey, do Christians have a freed will? They'd probably think to themselves, well, bondage of the will, I guess not. But even the bondage of the will teaches this. That the will is bound in curvatus in se to itself. So the sinner's will can only sin, can only sinfully serve himself. But if we've been made new in Christ, then there is a new will 
just as there is a new man, and that will is free to love God in a way that the old man is not free to love God. He by nature loves himself. So again, they now have a freed will. As Christ says, quoting John 8.36, they have been made free again. There's, there's a, a test case for you because John 8, 3, uh, this section in John gets preached at Reformation time all the time. And I wonder how many sermons you've heard treat it the way our confessions treat it. Whoever, is a, whoever sins is a slave to sin. And so the Lutheran preacher who's forgotten his Lutheran theology will preach... We're all just slaves until the day we die. Thanks be to God, in that day, Christ will set us free. But is that what Christ says? No. So they now have a freed will, as Christ says, they have been made free again. Therefore, they are able not only to hear the word, so an unbeliever doesn't have ears to hear, a believer does, They are able not only to hear the word, but also to agree with it and accept it, although in great weakness. But don't undermine the point. I mean, the difference is light and darkness. The difference is an ability to agree with it and accept it, an ability to perceive and hear it, whereas those who are dead in trespasses have no such ability. Now, that's the credit of the Holy Spirit, and it's something he's done. And to deny that is to deny the work of the Holy Spirit. Let me give you just one more. I know we're a minute or two over. If you've got to go, please feel free to go. But let me just give you a little more. So skipping just a couple paragraphs, Chemnitz continues, This is certainly true. In genuine conversion, a change, new emotion, and movement in the intellect, will, and heart must take place. The heart must perceive sin. Dread God's wrath, turn from sin, see and accept the promise of grace in Christ, have good spiritual thoughts, have a Christian purpose and diligence, and fight against the flesh. Where none of these things happen or are present, there is no true conversion. Okay? One more. Skipping ahead now. Book of Concord, Formula of Concord, Solid Declaration. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you all the excerpts here in a minute. One final excerpt, and then I'll be done. In conversion, God changes the stubborn and unwilling people into willing people through the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Remember how I just said that the will doesn't participate? It has to be, it's the very thing that has to be converted. After such conversion... In the daily exercise of repentance, a person's regenerate will is not idle. I almost cannot stand the phrase, as frequently is used, that um, God or the Holy Spirit or whatever repents us. Because, first of all, that's not how Scripture speaks. And second of all, it's a denial of this idea that Christians, in repentance, their will is not idle. So it's like, you know, I don't just sit on the couch waiting for God to repent me. (laughs) What'd you do today? Got drunk and played video games. Again? Yeah, well, I'm waiting for the Holy Spirit to repent me. Still hasn't happened yet. What an error. What a cosmic error. So... After such conversion, in the daily exercise of repentance, a person's regenerate will is not idle, but also cooperates in all the Holy Spirit's work that he does through us. Notice that, cooperates. So the old, the old uh, slogan of like, well, we're the glove and the Holy Spirit's the hand, so we participated in it, but only passively, is denied by this article that we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in all the works that he does through us. I mean, how could it be other, right? I I don't black out and realize that I served my neighbor in some way. I'm there, I'm cooperating in it, I'm participating in it. Okay, (laughs) that's just glorious. 
when you have common sense and Holy Scripture combined. So you cooperate in all the Holy Spirit's works that he does through us. How this happens has already been explained well enough above. And the well enough above is worthwhile in reading because, again, all credit and glory goes to the Holy Spirit. That's what's explained above. It's not like two oxen pulling a cart that can't be pulled by one. It's not like the Holy Spirit somehow needs me. Or it's all, ways of, all manner of ways of formulating this incorrectly. Those are rejected. The good ways of formulating it need to be taught, and more importantly, need to be believed. Because when we believe, therein is the power. All right, I'm so sorry. Thank you for your indulgence. Um, So again, Formula of Concord, Article 2. I'll give you the specific paragraphs in a minute. The Lord be with you.